Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. In his lifetime, Goethe was not um, all that respected. The young Goethe of Werther and the first version of Faust was, of course, immensely admired. But the older Goethe wrote works which his contemporaries found very hard to understand. And in the first half of the 19th century, there was a feeling that he'd become a bit of a back number. Also, many people felt that Goethe was much too immoral. He didn't seem to believe in God. He lived with a woman he wasn't married to. There are many sexually explicit things in his poetry. Oh dear. Um, It wasn't until the foundation of the German Empire in 1871 that Goethe was really built up in a quite conscious process as the figurehead for the new Germany. You mentioned Hesse earlier on. You may remember that case in Steppenwolf, how the main character, Harry Haller, visits the professor and sees in the professor's house a bust of Goethe, which he doesn't like, because he thinks that that's Goethe made respectable and falsified as an idol of middle classes, whereas the real Goethe, he insists rightly, was a much more turbulent, difficult and challenging figure. Is Goethe the greatest love poet of modern Europe? And what can you learn from a failed relationship or unrequited love? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two imaginative writers, one a German, the other an American. Writers of tremendous audacity, complexity, vibrancy and punch. American publishing sensation Lauren Groff discusses her chilling new book, Fates and Furies, a bitter story of marriage, fatedness and the roles we play, which was shortlisted for the 2015 American Book Award. And Dr. Richie Robertson unpacks the legend that is German poet, writer and intellectual Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and assesses his gargantuan impact on German culture, literature and the arts. This is a show about good and evil, devotion, sexual longing and female rage. But first, does love deceive? Hello, my name is Lauren Groff and I just published my fourth novel. It's called Fates and Furies. I'm about to read from the first part of the book, from the point of view of the man in the book. His name is Lancelot or Lotto. And he is on a panel and he is getting himself into some hot water right now. My wife, Mathilde, for instance, gave up her job years ago to make mine run more smoothly. She loves to cook and clean and edit my work. It makes her happy to do these things. And what piece of jerk chicken would condescend to say that she was blessed for not being the creator in the family? He was pleased with how smoothly the words seemed to exit his mouth. He thanked the powers that be for his goodness. Nothing to do with it. Tartly from the girl playwright. I have a wife, and I am a wife. I'm not comfortable with the gender essentialism I'm hearing here. I mean, of course, wife in the genderless sense of help me, Lancelot said. They're male wives. When I was an actor, I was so underemployed that I basically did all the housework myself while my children the dough. He did the dishes. That part was true. Anyway, there is an essential difference in genders that isn't politically correct to mention these days. Women are the ones to bear the children, after all. They're the ones to nurse. They're the ones traditionally who care for the infant. That takes a huge amount of time. He smiled, waiting for the applause that something had gone wrong. There was cold silence from the crowd. 
Someone was talking in a loud voice at the back of the auditorium. What had he done? He looked down in panic at Mathilde, his wife, who was staring at her shoes. The girl playwright scowled at Lancelot and said, enunciating very crisply, Did you just say that women aren't creative geniuses because they have babies? No, he said. Goodness, no. Not because. I wouldn't say that. I love women. And not all women have babies. My wife, for one. At least, not yet. But listen, we're all given a finite amount of creativity, just like we're given a finite amount of life. And if a woman chooses to spend hers on creating actual life, not imaginary life, that's a glorious choice. If women have historically demonstrated less creative genius than men, it's because they're making their creations internal, spending the energies on life itself. It's kind of a bodily genius. You can't tell me that that isn't at least as worthy as a genius of imagination. The murmurs had turned angrier. He listened, astonished, and heard only a very small smattering of applause. What, he said. Really well done on the book, Lauren. It's a it's a terrific read. It's it's an incredibly intense read and it demands a lot of the reader. It certainly puts a, a different spin on marriage and relationship and on the sacrifices we make in relationships. But it got me thinking, is sacrifice really what marriage is all about? No, I don't think so at all. No, I actually um, think I probably believe the opposite. You know, marriage is about a mutual feeding, and it's about always paying attention to the other person. And I think that the narrative that we hear often about marriage is that it is about sacrifice. And there are things that we do sacrifice in order to, to be within a relationship, and it doesn't have to be a married relationship, but, you know, a long-term, you know, serious relationship. I, I think what you do sacrifice is obviously a little bit of freedom, but at least in my perspective, you get so much more, you know, there's security, there's friendship, there's intimacy, you know. Um, so so I actually, I, I resist the idea that marriage is about sacrifice, and I, I think that it's about so, so much more than that. Now, Lauren, Fates and Furies is a story of one particular marriage. In some ways, you've used their stories to ask some very uncomfortable questions about relationships and also about society. Can you talk me through what was the big question for you when you set out to write this book? Absolutely. I had so many questions in my mind, and it's primarily because I have been married for a while now, almost 10 years, and I've been with my husband for another eight on top of that. Um, And the reason why it took me eight years to get married is because I don't necessarily believe in marriage myself, right? You know, that as an institution, just historically, it has been misogynistic in many, many ways. And a lot of the things that we don't question in terms of marriage, you know, are, are sort of latent things that have remained from the time when it was basically the selling of young women to rich men. Right? Um, so I went into this idea of marriage because I thought that, you know, it, it's not universal for sure, but it is one of the major societal aspects of the Western civilization. And through it, one can look at many other things, such as, you know, privilege and the nature of privilege and then the nature of um, creativity and and art and childbearing and all of these things that are so mixed up in the politics of marriage. In particular, I'm thinking about privilege. You know, I live in Florida um, in the United States, and Florida is an extraordinarily stratified society. And there are so many privileges that people around me take for granted without thinking about how they are invisible and how 
they affect people that don't have those privileges. And, you know, I am not one to shy away from an argument ever. And so I go to the gym in the morning with these very delightful, incredibly narcissistic um, Southern gentlemen. And I often get into these arguments about the fact that they believe that everything that they have in their lives comes from them. And it does not have anything to do with these invisible powers supporting them. I suppose, Lauren, it's a question of perspective and the perspective anyone has in a in a loving relationship and also what they're willing to account or admit to. So two people can look at their marriage entirely, entirely different ways, whether they look at it from a sacrifice point of view, from what they're offering from also the stratas within that marriage are the hierarchies. Who's in control and who isn't? Who's the responsible one? Who's a breadwinner? And then what are the privileges that come with that? And, you know, this is not, I mean, this is the story that one tells of one's relationship is never static either. I mean, it's always shifting and it's always dependent upon what's happening at the moment. I mean, we reframe our past at every moment. It's not a standard story that's stuck in stone, and it changes as we change. And, you know, if you have one event happening and two observers of that event, you're going to have two radically different ideas of what took place. And so I was really attracted to the idea that within this one united thing, this marriage, there could be such wildly divergent ideas about what has happened within it. And yet, you know, there's no infidelity. You know, there's no idea that the the love ever is shattered or shaken. Can you describe yeah. Mathilde? Because she's a very damaged person. She's a very secretive person. And her backstory is particularly dark. I actually think of Matilda as a survivor. I think that she's incredibly tough and she's farsighted in a way that most people are not. And I certainly am not in my personal life. She's able to sort of sit on the clouds and see what's happening on the earth and able to, you know, sort of foresee what could possibly happen in the future. And I think that that sort of foresight is tremendously rare. And I love her because she has learned to protect herself and she's learned that um, there are things to her that are extraordinarily important and one of them is security. And she will do anything to maintain that security and also to maintain her relationship with her husband. And so there are choices that she makes that, you know, I am a feminist, you know, I probably would not make them myself, but she made them in order to survive. And uh, I find that completely admirable. You know, her her past is difficult and she carries that trauma around with her, but she has been able to fight through. I think she's I think she's pretty whip smart. Would you describe her as somebody who has a lot of rage? Absolutely. This is one of those things, too, that, you know, as I was thinking about the book, I sat down with a group of my friends and, you know, we were having some wine and we were talking and I, you know, these are all professional women in their 30s and 40s. And I realized that they're just sort of underneath this very veneer. They were sort of boiling with rage. And I said this aloud, right? And this is just one of those times when I probably shouldn't have said anything. And they all turned on me enraged. <laughs> this is just one of those moments where I realized that you know, possibly this is not um, universal again, but this is relatively common that the, the people, at least the people I know, feel so trapped by their lives and these lives that they have chosen, you know, these lives that are actually quite good, but 
it makes them extraordinarily angry. Um, and yet, at the same time, there are enough restraints upon us in a social way to inhibit the expression of this rage. So I found it quite a fascinating paradox. And I wanted to think about the sort of the how deep female rage could go and, and what it is, and particularly in people who, on the surface, you don't see this anger sort of boiling underneath what they do. So, yeah, it's it's how you develop the story and how you develop the anger, the rage in the story that I find particularly appealing because it creeps up upon the reader and becomes very, very intense. I was just wondering, within all the anger and the rage and how you were uh, writing it, one of the issues that does jump off the page in the book is that whether truth is really necessary in marriage and whether the foundations of what apparently or what can be a good marriage is based on truth or not. Do you think in some ways we're better off closing chapters of our lives and moving forward? Absolutely. And I think part of what I was thinking about, you know, as I was writing the book is there's an urge for, you know, people in troubled relationships to have total intimacy, right? And complete honesty about all aspects of life previous and post the relationship starting to get together. And I think that that's actually really quite harmful. And I think that maintaining a sense of autonomy and, you know, whatever that means, you know, having this own, your own very vivid private life within yourself, that's really, really important within a marriage. I mean, being codependent is probably less exciting than actually being a human being and being able to keep some of the things that are in you from spilling out. I actually, I, I think the mystery is really, really quite rich. But do you think love deceives, apart from the lies of omission, do you think it's an aspect of all loving relationships that we pull back well, on certain necessarily. things? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's this amazing Rilke quote, and I feel like it's a pretentious writer to, to say it, but he says, a merging of two people is an impossibility. And where it seems to exist, it is a hemming in, a mutual consent that robs one party or both parties of their fullest freedom and development. And I love that so much. I mean, that was one of those quotes that was sort of sitting before me as I was thinking about this book. Um, because I love the idea that within two people, there's always this mysterious, massive gap. But embracing that massive gap and, and sort of understanding it and, and moving along with the, the, the way that the gap moves is, is just the most flexible way of being in an intimate relationship, I think. Can you describe Lotto, our husband in this story, our male protagonist? So Lotto um, is from Florida, and I've, I've lived in Florida for 10 years now, and I am not from here. It's a very, very, very strange world. And so my idea when I was writing this book was, you know, from the beginning, and he sort of morphed, but um, at the beginning, Lotto was my idea of what Florida would be as a human being. I mean, he's sort of hot, you know, he's he's large, he's, he's um, larger than life, and he's charismatic, and he's warm, but there's something very, very weird going on in the center of him. <laughs> so, so from the beginning, you know, I sort of thought of Lotto as, you know, Floridian, and down to his very, very bones. And he's a um, a failed actor. I mean, he, he might have had a small amount of talent, but uh, he had more ego and narcissism than talent, I think. But then he sort of shifts into becoming a playwright, and that's actually where he was meant to be all along and he didn't quite realize it until rather late so that's that's Lotto the husband of the story he lacks a remarkable amount of curiosity I thought yes 
absolutely. Um, he's a narcissist, right? I mean, and he's one of those charming narcissists, and I can think of a number I've met before, who is the magnet at the center of the room. I mean, he's the one that everyone wants to talk to and everyone believes that he loves them. But the truth is he loves himself in other people. And he, he does absolutely lack a great deal of curiosity. But what he has instead is a great deal of reflected love. So he loves people for who they are because he lacks the curiosity to see the, the dark parts of them. But I was just wondering, Lauren, do you think that there are some people in marriages or relationships or in friendships who have not been curious about their loved ones or people they care for, what happened before they knew them. So and they oh, kind yes. of presume I the do. world began when they met, but that they are I they do, don't I have think, any yeah. depth of interest in their other aspects of their life before they met. You know, I don't think it's very common, but I absolutely think that it exists in, in the spectrum of human relations. Absolutely. Why do you think this book and the, and the story in it has been such an instant success? We have celebrities reading your books. We have the likes of Barack Obama saying he loved your book. It's had a huge impact on the literary scene. What is it in the story that seems to resonate so much? I wish I knew yeah, uh, um, the answer to that. Honestly, I wasn't expecting this book. It's, uh, it's my third novel. You know, I, I also read a short story collection that basically not even my parents read. Um, <laughs> So it's my fourth book, and so I just assumed that it was going to do what the other books did, which is, you know, exist, get a few nice reviews, and sort of fade into the background also. And I'm not quite sure. I think that one thing is that the book is somewhat set up as sort of a secret thriller in in terms of it's a literary fiction, but the way that it um, is structured, um, I consciously borrowed from other narrative forms. And one of them is the thriller in the second part of the book. And so um, I think that that, you know, it it was unexpected. And when people get to that part, they're like, what is happening? And I have no idea. And um, things, so things shift in the second part of the book. And the other thing is, I think, you know, you could say and you could frame the idea of, you know, the novel as its own art form as the story of marriage, right? Because many, many, many novels have been about this one thing. And in the beginning, you know, of course, it was about the social contract of marriage and what happens if you don't get married. And then, I mean, it's it's not universal again, as I said, but it's, it is a very, very common thing um, in many people's lives, if not most of our lives, um, to have an intimate relationship like this. And um, it's just profoundly mysterious. And so possibly people are responding to that as well. Um, and I think that, you know, in terms of my my previous book to this, it's called Arcadia, and it's just much more quiet. It was about uh, a utopianist experiment in upstate New York, and um, it's just a very, very quiet book. In this book, I intentionally tried to make it operatic because opera is one of the the sort of themes or, or things running through it that I, I was playing with. So, you know, I think it just hit at the right time and I feel really happy. But of course, you're only as good as what you're writing at the time. And I'm in the very, very beginning stages of whatever my next project is going to be. And it, it feels very shaky and very you know tender right now. So I'm focusing on that as opposed to anything else right now. And that was American novelist Lauren Groff. Fates and Furies is published by Penguin Random House and retails for just under 13 euros in paperback. Now, I have to say, this is a powerful, bold and incredibly well-structured book. But be warned, Fates and Furies is not for the more gentle or sensitive reader. It's dark, dirty and fairly heavy-duty stuff. 
That's it. If you can take it, you'll love it. I tried to unravel the mystery of Jesus Christ the Savior. I read the poets and the analysts. Searched through the books on human behavior. I don't know why I don't know how But she's nobody's baby now I loved her then And I guess I love her still Hers is the face I see When a certain mood moves in blood and skin A wild feral stare Her dark hair Her winter lips As cold as stone this evening. Well, tonight in Talking Books, we're embracing stories about failed relationships, sexuality and reinvention. Next up, it's a writer of tremendous gusto and passion, the man who brought us masterpieces such as Faust, 
the sufferings of young Werther and the Roman elegies. A German who inspired generations of composers, poets, artists and philosophers and by doing so created a national literature. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, possibly the best-known poet and writer in the German language. My name is Richie Robertson. I'm a professor of German language and literature and I deal with German literature from about um, 1650 down to the present day. Within that I have some specialisms. I've done a lot of work on Kafka and some on other 20th century authors, especially Thomas Mann. But in recent years I've paid much more attention to the 18th century and that includes bringing out a small book on Goethe intended to explain why Goethe matters, who he was, what he wrote, what he did to a general audience. Richie, really well done in the book. It's an extraordinary read, uh, hugely compelling, very funny in parts, very probing in other parts. I might throw a beautiful quote from Goethe to you, a bit of love poetry, actually. And, oh, yes. Uh, sure, we'll see where we go with it. Yep. What is the world without love? Like a magic lantern without light. Yes, that's what Werther says in one of his letters. But it's, another, it's a rather betraying quotation, because Werther, who is madly in love, and commits suicide out of unrequited love, but for a whole complex of other reasons. And in that quotation, he certainly thinks he's saying that love is all-important, but he is implying the world without love is, is worthless. So you can see, in fact, that part of Werther's character um, is um, melancholy, a tendency to, to depression. And so the fact that he ends up committing suicide is already hinted at at the very beginning of the novel. So like most things in Goethe, it can be taken in two ways. Is it fair to describe Goethe as an intellectual hero? You say somewhere that he was very much a Renaissance man. He was a very contemplative guy, very impulsive, very spontaneous, mm. but an absolute genius nonetheless. Yes. Well, if you mean by a Renaissance man, somebody who's good at everything, then I don't think this quite applies to Goethe. But it is true that he wrote, and he wrote some really path-breaking works in almost every genre, in the novel, in poetry, of course, in drama, in autobiography, and in, in travel writing. And he, he wrote a great many works of um, natural history and science, which um, may or may not be rated as science nowadays, but are certainly worth reading. But on the other hand, to say that he had an equal achievement in every field is another matter. It is true, for example, that he put a lot of energy into art, into drawing. He was a very good art critic, and he produced a great many drawings, which um, are good, although in the opinion of connoisseurs, not outstanding. But he was quite musical. He could play the piano very well, but he never composed. But anyway, what Goethe did do, you know, would be enough for any normal ten lifetimes. You say somewhere that if Goethe is supreme among love poets, it is because he explores so many aspects of an experience which Mm. in recent centuries has been considered central to human Mm. life. Uh Goethe gives us the whole gamut from Mm. youthful yearning via erotic fulfilment Mm -hmm. to later sublimation. Mm -hmm. Is he the greatest poet of uh, modern Europe? I'd be inclined to say so, yes. And for the reason you just quoted... Some of Goethe's love poetry is the expression of frustrated yearning, but some of it is the expression of some real sexual consummation. That applies to the Roman elegies, which he wrote in about 1790, after coming back with two two years in Italy. What actually prompted them was a full-dress, passionate love affair that he had with Christiana Volpius, a woman with whom he lived for many years without being married to her. In Weimar, that was a scandalous thing to do, 
and he only just got away with it. And in these poems, Goethe describes, he describes them in bed together. He describes they're making love so the bed creaks, etc., etc. And in fact, um, poetry as energetic and frank as this couldn't easily be, be published. Some of the poems were never published in Goethe's lifetime, including the one about the creaking bed, but the majority were published by his friend Schiller in 1795, and even so they caused a good deal of shock. Then, sublimation. Christiana and Goethe did eventually marry. She died in 1816. Goethe had romantic friendships with some other ladies, which, as it were, came to nothing, but um, brought him a great, a great deal of enjoyment and themselves generated very fine poetry, but obviously not in the same passionate mould. I was impressed to read that a year before he died, I think it was, he proposed to a 17-year-old whom he met in a spa while he was on holidays. And he really lived large, didn't he, in terms of his (laughs) reach and his drive? Well, yes, actually she was 19, but but she was still 55 years younger than he was. He was infatuated. Um, The young woman very sensibly refused him. She felt she wasn't ready for marriage at all, let alone for a much older man. Goethe was very upset. And you see in his late poem called Trilogy of Passion how he worked through this very painful experience. At that time, he would be in his early 70s. So, yes, he was a person full of, full of vigor. And, in fact, um, in the last letter he wrote, a few days before his death, 1832, when he was still entirely compos he says that his task is to go on working, to go on developing, and to go on working out his individuality. Can we talk about his first novel? I know we just brought yes, it up certainly. at the start there, The Suffering of Young Werther. Well, a lot to be said um, about it. Published in 1774, when I That's think right. Goethe was just 25 years old. Now, mm-hmm. Richie, it was a runaway success. He became literally a literary celebrity overnight. He was suddenly known all across Europe. Is it fair to say that that book in some way transformed the image of German literature and what it could do. Yes, I think it did. It was the first um, work in German to have a European vogue, as, as you say, and it was a book that had an enormous, enormous emotional appeal, and it was certainly translated into many languages. It was read by, by everyone. Now, Werther, the character, is a very tormented kind of a guy, yeah. a very jealous type of a guy. Mm-hmm. He uh, he falls in love, and unfortunately it's unrequited, with a, a lady who's actually mm-hmm. engaged to be married called mm-hmm. Lottie. One of the aspects of the story that I wasn't aware of is that Goethe had actually borrowed some of the facts of this story mm-hmm. from a real-life event, the suicide mm-hmm. of a young man. That kind of adds a certain dimension to... To this, the success of this yes. book, and as I said, a very kind of a slippery aspect. Mm. It does raise some uncomfortable questions. I think you say that in some way it illustrates the egotism of genius, yes. but it also created a dialogue or created a, dis- a discussion in the 18th century on suicide. Mm-hmm. So, where do you stand in all of that? Yes, Goethe was teamless in using people's real life experiences as material for his own fiction, and that's not the only example. And the novel does play a part in the 18th century discussion of suicide. There's a whole discussion of suicide in the novel. And Werther takes the view that um, if you treat a suicide with sympathy, the suicide is somebody who is ill rather than wicked. And certainly should not be seen as cowardly or too feeble to face life. In other words, suicide is treated 
as first and foremost a medical problem. Of course, it's ironic that Werther takes that view, because later on he does himself commit suicide, and while suicide has very complicated motives, you do suspect that one of them is revenge against the people who didn't return his love. Could it be argued that there is a synergy between what was happening in his life and then the type of writing he was doing, whether it's writing the plays, the poetry, mm-hmm. and so on, that there was a connection of sorts and one impacted on the other? Oh, certainly. He did himself say, late in life, that all his writings were fragments of a great confession and they all have a, a personal dimension. Werther has some connection to his own experience. He himself was at one stage in love with a married woman who was even less keen than the lady in the novel on returning his love. He himself contemplated suicide. Writing was for him a way of getting things off his chest, working through them, and having something solid and concrete to show from his often painful experiences. He certainly had a flair for tapping into the psychological intensity in life and how he presented his characters, didn't he? He was able to Mm -hmm. capture that intensity, that essence. Well, that's certainly true. In fact, um, all his um, main characters go through very um, stormy emotional experiences. That's true, for example, of his novel Wilhelm Meister's Lehrjahre, Wilhelm Meister's Apprenticeship, often said to be the key German Bildungsroman, in which um, Wilhelm's education, which is more an emotional education, is punctuated by devastating emotional experiences. He has a struggle against depression, but um, all the experiences he goes through turn out to be necessary in order to make him, in the end, a mature person, a good father and a good, and a good citizen. So once again, something is gained. Do you think we would have had the likes of Franz Kafka or mm. Gunter Grass or mm. Thomas Mann mm-hmm. or even Hermann Hesse if we uh, didn't have Goethe? Yes, I think, I think Kafka and Grass are writers who are not very attached to, to traditions. I think we would have had them without Goethe. Um, we would have had a rather different Thomas Mann and a rather different Hesse without Goethe, but they are writers very conscious of, of tradition. And Mann, of course, actually wrote a novel about Goethe, Lotte in Weimar, which imagines... The original of Lotte, the heroine Werther, 40 years later, visiting Weimar, where her former lover, or would-be lover, is now a great figure, and finding that Goethe is the centre of everyone's attention. Whether people like him or loathe him, they're all absolutely fascinated by him. The novel is actually an extremely good one. I read it last summer in Weimar, and it really came to life. How do you assess Goethe's place in scientific thought? You write beautifully about his understanding of nature. Mm-hmm. You say somewhere that humanity formed a part of greater unity, that yeah. of nature. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. he believed in. Yes, and yes. he believed that nature was always right. It was mm-hmm. in constant flux mm-hmm. and perpetual motion. I'm just wondering, what do you think he offered in terms of the, in, in the world of mm-hmm. science? Okay. What, now, how do you think he wrote it differently to others? Well, here I stuck my neck out and many people would disagree with me But having looked closely at Goethe's scientific writings, I think he was a very enthusiastic and very well-informed observer and student of nature. I'm not sure that makes him a scientist in our sense. He wrote a great deal about geology, about um, the formation of plants and animals, about anatomy, about the formation of clouds. But the only thing he found out was the existence of um, a bone connecting the upper and lower jaws that's found in human embryos as well as in animals. 
and that's been discovered by somebody else anyway. Because it didn't, for example, favor the use of instruments like the telescope and the microscope, although they did use both occasionally. But he disapproved of them because they, dis- they disturbed the normal human relationship to objects. Now, if you don't use instruments to improve your observations, that again sets some great limits to what you can find out. And then another curious aspect of Goethe's science is his campaign against Newton's color theory. He didn't accept Newton's theory of refraction, but had a different explanation for um, light and color. And his campaign against Newton, or, or, or against Newton's color theory, was of course Newton was long dead, became an extraordinary obsession. You say somewhere that um, he claimed that the highest form of knowledge is intuitive. Mm-hmm. And you cite a letter that he wrote to his good friend, the poet Schiller. He mm-hmm. wrote, wrote something on the lines of, only the whole of humanity can understand nature. What did he actually mean by that? Well, I'm not entirely sure. But I think he meant that um, the understanding of nature is something each individual does differently. In other words, Goethe didn't think of science as something impersonal, but rather it's also the understanding of nature as something on which everyone has a, has a different take. So it's more like art or philosophy in that respect, or indeed like religion. In other words, he didn't have the sense of science as ultimately contributing to a single body of knowledge. He thought there was a great deal of room 